0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. In part one, we spoke about the interesting power of ask. And in part two, we talked about more stories, but most importantly, specific exercises on how to increase your ability to ask for things that you're uncomfortable asking for, More exercises on how to say no, more exercises on how to deal with rejection, more exercises on how to have influence, even in social media. Without further ado, part two. We've talked about a couple of ways of asking, like one is transactional where, hey, if I give you a dollar, can I cut in line? And the other is, hey, can I cut in line because I'm really late for my airplane or whatever? Uh, uh, But are there other features that people can do to dampen the person from saying no, even though the person doesn't want to say no anyway, can I make it even less likely that the person will will say no?
1: Yeah. So we already talked about sort of the biggest finding in my research is asking face to face whenever possible. Um, So we have a huge difference in email and actually um, my former student, Maddie Roganizad and I have some new research looking at asking over zoom or asking over the phone and asking in person. And even that in person is just much better than asking, You know, even when you have face-to-face synchronous sort of interactions over Zoom, it's still not as good as being face-to-face. So that's a huge one. Um, and then the other one we find in our research is making sure we ask directly and so it's funny because we think we found that our, our participants think that like hinting at something is somehow a better way to get things like I could really use some help with this thing um, as if that's sort of going to get someone to volunteer but actually if you just come out and say hey could you help me with this it's much more effective and it's funny how much we don't recognize that like we actually have to be direct when we when we ask for things.
0: Uh, yeah, I think that's true. And actually, I think the transactional one could even work against you. Like if you say, Hey, I'll do this for you. If you help me with this, I think people kind of resent that a little bit. Like just ask me, don't, you know, but, uh, but here's one question, which is sometimes I don't, I really, you, you know, people say, Oh, it doesn't hurt to ask. That's a common phrase. Oh, I might as well ask because if I don't ask, I'll never get it. So I might as well ask, doesn't hurt to ask. I kind of think sometimes it does hurt people to ask. Like if people say to me, Hey, it doesn't hurt to ask. Can I have 20 minutes of your time on a phone call? I want to pitch you this idea. I will probably never, ever respond to that person again, because sometimes it does hurt to ask. It doesn't really respect my time. And I mean, that's just one example, but I feel there are many examples where it hurts someone to ask, to be a little too forward about asking. Like, I think, I feel like reciprocity is better. Like they should do something for me. Like here's 10 ideas for instance, to make your podcast better. And if I like those ideas and then they write me another email and say, um, Hey, uh, don't know if you saw this website I put up, you know, could you look at it for like one second and tell me what you think? Then I'm more likely to say yes. But if if that's reciprocity, but if they, if they add value to my life, I'm more likely to say yes.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and I think to add to that, I think a lot of times people think, Oh, as a takeaway. Just ask all the time for anything, you know, just ask, 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 um, And I I agree. I think there are cases where, you know, you need to take a step back and think like, is it worthwhile to ask this person? What's this person likely to think about, you know, this request? And, you know, maybe they would be more likely to say yes than you think. But even if they say no, like, for example, if that you get that email from that person, you're like, I really don't want to do this. They don't respect my time you still feel guilty, right? You just, you see that you're just like, ah, oh, now you're making me feel like a bad person, like not responding to you. And I think we don't realize sort of the awkward position we put in other people when we ask for things. And that sort of gets to like the book vandalism study, right, where so many of the things we've looked at are favors and good things where you feel good when you help somebody, right? And that's where reciprocity makes it kind of weird. It's like, I don't want to think I, I helped someone because it gave me something. I want to feel good, like I'm a helpful person. Um, But then there are these other situations where we ask people for things that maybe we shouldn't, maybe we're overburdening people, right? Maybe we're asking them for inappropriate things or unethical things like the library book.
0: Or we're asking something that might be disrespectful. Like simply asking for someone's time, if they're a busy person could be disrespectful. If you are not providing any value, like, like here's a, here's a way sometimes people don't even realize that they're slightly disrespectful. They might ask me, um, Hey, what do you, what do you need most in life right now? Or, or how can I help you solve your biggest problem? So they're, they think they're being providing value, but in reality, they're giving me a homework assignment. Now I've got to figure out what my biggest problem is and structure it in such a way that I can figure out how they can help me. That's a lot of work. And mm-hmm. in that sense, they don't even realize they probably think they're being helpful, but they're being the opposite of that. So I simply don't respond. It's hard for me to respond to that because there's no response. Uh, other than me telling them, don't give me a homework assignment. And I don't mean this in a mean way. Like, so, and I'll, 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 I'll give an example from my own life. So this is an experiment you could say I did, but, uh, not in a formal way. I once wrote 20 people, 20 heroes of mine asking if I could buy them a cup of coffee and pick their brain for a little bit. And I got zero response as I should have gotten zero response and then well, I went back to the drawing board and I came up with 10 ideas for each person based on what I do about them and their business and, and what they might. And I had to do the research, what they needed. And I did something completely the opposite. I said, I love your business or I love what you do, or I love this about what you do, uh, here's 10 ideas I think could help you. I'm not asking for anything. You don't need to respond. Good luck. And I found then I had a, a, a much more significant response rate. W- mm-hmm. Meaning up from zero.
1: So I'd be curious because that example also is all over text, right? So even if we went back to that guy who was like, "Can I have twenty minutes of your time?" and he d- didn't seem to be offering any value or even giving you homework, if you if it was person, if it was in person, do you think that that interaction would have gone differently? Do you think it would have been harder to say no? A hundred percent. Okay. Yeah. I
0: always say yes. Let's say I, let's say I just gave a talk <laughs> and someone comes up to me afterwards and said, "Hey, can I talk to you for five minutes?" I a hundred percent of the time I say yes, even if I don't, I mean, sometimes I want to, but sometimes I don't. And so usually people around me know this about me and they'll see this happening They'll say, James, some, I need you for something back uh, over here. And so I often get, I often arrange to get saved in these situations,
1: <laughs> right?
0: Even when investors, like one time I had a company pitch me on an investment. Now I did my due diligence and research before the meeting. And I knew that I should say no to this pitch, no matter what, like this company was going to fail. But I also know that I have a hard time saying no, and I'm easily convinced, which is, which is related to some topics in your book, which we could talk about. Um, so I know that when someone actually pitches me and they're a good salesperson, which most people basically are, I'm, I'm going to be easily convinced. So I always go into meetings like that with another person, and I I and in this case I told the person I was with, no matter what I say afterwards, make sure I say no and remind me of all these reasons. And after the meeting, I really did sincerely say, you know, that seemed pretty good. I really liked this guy and I really like this company. It seems like we should take a, another look at this. And and my friend, his name's Doug, my friend said, James, remember what you said. You have to say no to this. He had to really remind me and and forcefully remind me to say, to say no, and that could be related. To it's hard to say no, but also it's related to your point that people have more influence than they think. So here I was, all pre-set. I did research. I knew this was a bad idea. I knew the CEO was probably a bad guy, like a like borderline criminal, and yet he had more influence than he thought over someone who even did research on him. I was ready to say yes, and so this this brings to the point that that people don't realize not only the power of ask, but the power of their influence.
1: Yeah, and I mean, there's so many interesting things to sort of unpack there. One is this idea that it's, we are more easily convinced than we expect, and we can convince other people more easily than we expect, right? We think that we have to have this perfect airtight argument, but most people are not picking apart our arguments as much as we really think they are. And they're kind of just going along with the gist of what we're saying and our enthusiasm and things like that. Um, and so we kind of brace ourselves for this massive persuasive attempt when it doesn't often take that much Um, And then this aspect of having an agent sort of, I love this. I always tell people this who struggle with saying no or people who struggle with asking is, you know, both those things. It's just so intense for the person doing the asking or needing to say no and having a third party who can be the person who either assesses the situation, you know, objectively and reminds you like your colleague was doing um, or just says no for you or ask on your behalf right like when a friend goes and asks someone out for you because you don't want to be the one who actually does it it does wonders having an agent who's not the person who could be hurt sort of
0: that was my go-to technique in fifth grade (laughs) (laughs) so didn't really work that well though but um so given this how can i how can one improve their life knowing that they pretty much have more influence in every situation than they think and not just in asking for something but in terms of motivating in terms of spreading an idea how, how, how can someone take advantage of this and not advantage yeah. in a bad way, but how can someone improve their life this way?
1: Yeah, so I mean I think a big part of it is you can you can improve your life by asking for things more that you feel like you actually deserve or need or want and kind of come at it with the expectation that people are more inclined to say yes than you think. You know, I think we we sort of go into these situations and we brace ourselves for the no and we brace ourselves for this like, you know, need to sort of really pitch hard. When in fact, you know, most people are inclined to say yes or, you know, feel bad enough saying no, that it's not going to be as painful as we tend to think. Um, And that can mean things like you don't have to write this long email and have your, you know, friends reread it 10 times. Um, Instead, you can usually just make sort of a simple ask. So there's sort of the asking piece. And then there's other elements also that I talk about in the book, like our mere sort of presence in a room, right? So if we wanna change elements at our organization, sometimes we think that we have to have all the answers and the ideas and we have to come up with them and sort of pitch them. But sometimes just being present and part of the discussion makes a big difference because people see who's in the room. We kind of shape our discussion around who's in the room. You can imagine like a group of men having a conversation and then a group of men with a couple women, right? All of a sudden the presence of the women Changes how you talk about a topic. You start recognizing that, like, oh, maybe we should also add something in there about, like, you know, maternity benefits or something, right? Because those people are there; they're top of mind, and it can change the discussion, even if they're not the one sort of raising the issue. And so, being present can sort of impact our our surroundings as well.
0: Now, you mentioned something in the book that, at first glance, seems obvious, but then when I thought about it, I, it's it's not necessarily obvious. And you mentioned that people are much more likely to be motivated by what you're saying if you're telling the truth. And, and at first glance, of course, that seems really obvious. And it's not like, I'm not saying, uh, people should ever lie, but I think sometimes people omit things and it's actually better to say often. I don't know when, like sometimes people will circle around questions rather than, or they'll avoid certain sensitive areas. And thinking that they're still telling the truth. But of course, omission is a form of lying. Uh, and uh, I think if you're willing, if you're really, you, I think the more you say, I don't know about something, the more truthful you seem, and, and you are, in fact. And I think I'm, I'm curious how that affects influence.
1: Yeah, so I think, so part of that um, comes to this uh, effect called truth default. And it's basically the tendency that when someone says something to us, just because of the nature of human communication, we assume that they're telling us the truth. Because honestly, if everything you said, I was like, that's not true, that's not true, that's not true, we wouldn't be able to have a conversation. So as much as we think like people are always arguing with each other and not believing one another, and that might be true in certain circumstances, In most interactions, we believe the things someone else is telling us are true. Um, And that means that other people believe what we tell them is true. And so when we say something, you know, we, we feel like we have to have an opinion on everything. And if we sort of start bullshitting about something we actually know nothing about, those people think that we do know something, right? They think that whatever we're saying is true they pass it on to more people than we might realize, right? Because we all have larger social circles than we tend to think. And these kind of um, pieces of bullshit that we spew can sort of get passed along and resonate much further than we realize, just because people kind of trust what we say.
0: Yeah, I think people kind of assume everybody's speaking the truth. But you see this on—well, I see this with my my kids. My kids will ask me something, and I'll answer, like, oh— Daddy, what start? What was the start of the World War II? Why did World War II start? And I might give an answer and really defend it, but I might not actually know. And I think it's a good exercise to sort of recognize. If I were to stop and really mark all the things I say during the day, where I'm pretty confident that what I'm saying is true, I would say a good twenty to fifty percent of the time I actually don't really know. And it's good to recognize when you when you don't know something, because then Again, I think knowing when you don't know something allows you, gives you the power of truth, which I think allows you to have more influence. But you see this on Twitter all the time. Everyone's an epidemiologist as soon as like COVID started. Everybody's a a geopolitical strategist as soon as Afghanistan happens. But most of the time people just don't actually know, but they've, they've sold themselves even into thinking that they know. And then they're able to sell everyone else if they're good at, you know, good with language and good at communicating and, and good at selling. So in that sense, I think people have even influence over themselves that they probably should be aware of.
1: Yeah. So I, John Petrocelli, um, who has a book about bullshit and studies bullshit, um, has this is that the book?
0: Is, is that the book on bullshit?
1: Oh, no. That's, that's an old amazing book um, from, I think, the 80s. <laughs> um this is also john Patrick patrick's book is also amazing i don't want to say but like on bullshit is like the sort of bible of bullshit Uh
0: um
1: but uh this one is the life altering or life-changing art of detecting bullshit something like that um but he's done research on bullshit and one of his studies he basically tells people the story like this guy was running for office and he drops out of the race that's all they find out about this guy And he asked them, why do you think he dropped out of the race? And people write all sorts of crazy stuff, right? There's no information in that story that would give them any sense that they know any reason why this guy dropped out of this political race. But, you know, they just spout ideas. And then in another condition, he says, if you don't know, you don't have to write anything. And all of a sudden, so many fewer people just write utter bullshit, right? So our default, when we're not told, you know what, you don't need to have an an answer to this. You don't need to come up with something is to just, you know, let our minds spin and just kind of spew this, this kind of uh, bullshit essentially. And then to your point, there's something called the saying is believing effect. That basically when we say something and someone nods along and says, that sounds like a reasonable explanation. Yeah, I bet that is why that happened. We tend to believe ourselves more. So we come up with bullshit, We say it out loud. It's kind of confirmed by someone else who thinks, all right, you know, they don't know, but they think like that sounds reasonable. And all of a sudden, both people kind of think this is a likely explanation. They start sharing it. And this is how, you know, this misinformation essentially spreads around.
0: The word influence is in the title of your book. You have more influence than you think. And now the phrase influencer is this overused phrase. It's like this almost like this professional category. Oh, I'm an influencer. And a lot of people, of course, start social media accounts hoping to have a lot of followers and to have influence. When, you know, in in fact, like the, the influence you're mostly referring to is, and, and I should mention in the very first chapter of your book, uh, people are, you're much more likely to have influence over somebody or some people if you also compliment them or if, or if you have, if you, if you're, if you express your gratitude, things that we often forget to do, uh, in simple situations, but people are much more likely to like you if you do a simple compliment or, gratitude, even a total stranger, but in, in a mass way, like let's say somebody wants to develop Twitter followers or Instagram followers or something. Where do, where does influence play a role here? How can you have influence over people you don't even know you're communicating with?
1: Yeah. So this is interesting, the sort of social media aspect of influence. And so there's a few things there. So there's research showing that we underestimate sort of our reach Right. So, you know, in general, in our social circle, uh, there's a graduate student here at at Cornell who's worked with his colleagues and has shown that people will say, you know, I think I have fewer friends and a smaller social network than other people. And it's that uh, that underconfidence effect, right, that's in contrast to those overconfidence effects we were talking about earlier. So in this case, it's the average person thinks they have a smaller social circle than the average person, basically. Um, And my graduate student and I have looked at this on social media as well and people the average people in our survey Think they have fewer Twitter followers than the average person in our survey right and on and on and all the social media platforms So we tend to think of the influencers that you're talking about as sort of our comparison and we're like oh well We're way below them. So I assume that you know, I'm way below average But in fact most people are way below those influencers, right? Um, so that's one piece is that we actually underestimate the extent to which we can have influence on those platforms. And then there's this other kind of cool effect, um, by Mike Bernstein, who talks about something called the invisible audience. And it's basically the idea that when we post something on social media, we tend to underestimate how many people see it by about three times. And we do that because we post it we look at how many people liked it and we assume, okay, if a couple people liked it, you know, I bet a few more people saw it than liked it. But in fact, many, many, many more people see something than actually engage with it and like it. Um, and so, in fact, three times more people tend to see our posts than we assume did. So we're constantly having more impact.
0: That's interesting. So let me look at um, maybe a tweet from two days ago. I had 88 likes. So with 88 and 13 comments. So let's say if I were to guess, I could say a thousand people saw this and now I can look at the analytics and I see 24,819 people saw this. So the ratio of likes to, uh, actual impressions is about, what is that? I can't add anymore. 300 to one. Something like that. (laughs) Um, so that might be the right ratio, but, um, uh, how can you, how, how can you say like, Everybody on Twitter, I feel says the same thing like, Oh, wake up early in the morning and be optimistic and you'll have a great day or be nice to someone today and your day will be great. That seems like generic bland, you know, social media influencer kind of stuff. But if you really have something you want to say and you feel social media is a great way to say it, how can you build up more influence and more and more followers and so on?
1: I mean, I think that. It, first of all, a lot of people think, like, to do that, you have to say these super product- provocative things and write in all caps and everything. Um, and in fact, I think that is part of our underestimating how many people are actually seeing the things we're we're putting out there, right? Um, to some extent, also, it's assuming that when people—not comparing our likes to other people's likes and assuming that is necessarily the influence, it's all about the likes, right? Because those generic things that you're talking about are the things we all like because, I mean, who doesn't like like this idea of, a yeah, that's a generic thing we're all going to like, and it's going to appeal to sort of um, the average sort of person who's going to just be like, 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 like. But that doesn't mean that those people—that, you know, you're not getting out there and a lot of people are seeing the things you have to say. Um, so I don't know. I would say I don't really have a good answer except to be genuine, um, and not, not spew bullshit and become sort of a trusted source of information, a trusted sort of curator of information, because I think that's just something that's really valuable.
0: I I agree. And I'll, I'll, I'll add to that by using some of the things in your, your book. One is, I think it's very important to tell the truth based on personal experience. So if I just say, Um, you know, better to wake up every day at 8am again, that's so generic, but if I follow it up with, you know, this is what happened to me when I woke up at 8am every day for 30 days in a row, I think people are more likely to share it, which means more people will see it than are your followers. And so you'll get more followers. The other thing is, I think there's a power to, and I'm curious what, what, if there's any research on this or what your thoughts are on this, I think there's a power to Oh, Okay, you mentioned the word be provocative. That's, it's only works, being provocative only works if you're speaking the truth. If you're being provocative to just be provocative, then that's awful, unless people are, are clear, like if you're trying to make a joke or you're being provocative that way. But if I, if I were to say, listen, I really think Cardi B should be president of the United States, that probably wouldn't gain me any followers, particularly if I was, pretending to be serious about it because I'm just, that's clear. I'm just trying to be provocative. But if you take something that people have a lot of, a strong belief about and a lot of cognitive dissonance against disagreeing with it. And if you firmly believe in the opposite, so you trigger that cognitive dissonance, I think that I don't know if it's good influence or or if it will get your followers or lose your followers, but it's, it'll have an effect. Like, so for instance, if, if. Every, most of the America, uh, believes you should own a home that a sign of success is owning a home and particularly people who bought a home. It's the biggest financial decision they've ever made in their lives. So there's huge cognitive dissonance to think that owning a home is a bad idea. You mean to say I spent the biggest amount of money I ever spent and it's a wrong idea that their brains just not going to let them think it's a wrong idea. But if you were to truthfully say, look, buying a home is a whole a bad idea for these five reasons that that in, in is provocative and it's truthful if you firmly believe it and if you follow it up with facts to kind of answer the objections uh so that it's a little harder for people to disagree without really going deep into their cognitive dissonance i think that is influenced. i'm just curious how that intersects with, with the ideas in your book that it intersects with the truthfulness aspect
1: mm-hmm. Yeah. So a couple things to add to that. So I'd say, first of all, one thing that I should step back and say is that one of the takeaways from my book is if you have more influence than you think, right? If more people are seeing your posts than you think, aside from just gaining more followers, right? So putting aside like gaining influence, but just... Recognizing that you do already have a certain amount of influence. I would say in the cheesy Spider-Man way, you know, with influence comes responsibility, right? And you don't want to just spew stuff just to, to get likes and followers and, you know. Which is
0: why yeah. truthfulness is important. Right. Well, the truth right. is important. You have, you have to believe you're, like, if, if, if that were the, if the scenario I described was a situation that happened, you have to believe you're helping people by saying, hey, this is a bad idea. Here's why.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And then so there's another piece that's reminded me of some really interesting research that came out recently about who we want to influence, who we sort of target our influence at, and it shows that if you could move, basically, budge someone, like imagine the other person's opinion is sort of on a scale, and you could budge that person's opinion three points on that scale, right? If you actually, you know, took a shot to influence them, Um, people prefer to flip people. They prefer to, you know, flip the liberal side to the conservative side on that scale, right? To completely, to someone who really believes strongly in home ownership to stopping, like, doesn't believe in it anymore on the other side, right? Right. But in fact, you're much more likely to have influence if you stay on the one side of the scale. You can have as much influence. You can move someone three whole points. And sometimes that can be the most important points because it drives people to more action. They go from like slightly agreeing with what you thought to like strongly agreeing with what you, you thought. I think we tend to forget that some of the people we're talking to aren't people who totally disagree with us, but people who aren't quite Quite as strong as us in a certain position that we can bring a little closer to be to feel more strongly about that position.
0: So g- give me an example of like a topic where you're not flipping someone, but you're. Uh, they might be mildly believing it, and 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 you're. I guess your goal would be to say this is much more important than you think. So you have to strongly. You should strongly believe in it. Not you have to, but you should. You should strongly believe in it. So like like, what's an an example issue?
1: Yeah, I mean, this topic? is actually it's it's pretty useful for like canvassers when they're trying to get bring people to the polls. I mean, this is used a lot. You don't, for example, if you are trying to get liberal voters to the polls or Democratic voters to the polls, it's about taking the ones who like are kind of, man, they're a little moderate. They don't vote that much, but they basically agree with what, you know, this candidate has to say and convince them even more strongly to agree with it. So they're not flipping. They're not, you know, they weren't originally conservatives or Republicans, and then all of a sudden they're going to vote Democrat. It's that they thought it was like, decent you know these points that were being made and you convince them that actually they're really really important and better than they thought right so that's sort of a classic way to do it to bring to because as you take these people who are like Matt, you know that's that's kind of a good idea but if I don't feel really strongly I'm not going to drive to the polls and actually vote but if you make me feel really strongly like I really believe in that now I'm going to go drive to the polls for example um, so that's sort of a classic one the home ownership one too though you could go from like You know, I, I really think home ownership is the most important American value. And we should make sure of this to actually, I think it works for some people, but not others, but not like, Oh, it's a total disaster that so many people own homes. Right? So you're pushing people a little closer to one side of the issue, but they're not flipping to the other side.
0: So, okay. So let's, let's give people some exercises out of this. Like, so that they can practically improve their lives. Like one is, I love the idea of the rejection therapy. Like, try to get rejected every day uh uh you know think of like you know simple things you can ask things you're afraid to ask outrageous things to ask but the goal is to get rejected a little bit each day and you'll get more comfortable in the future with asking for things and so on uh what's an exercise for getting people comfortable with saying no
1: so I will first I want to add a caveat to the rejection therapy one because I love I love rejection therapy and I see even in my studies that it, it works wonders to make people think like, oh my gosh, people really do say yes to me more than I think and rejection isn't as bad as I think. But I would say to choose the things you're asking for wisely so that everyone will enjoy the interaction because to some, I, I wouldn't have people do things like my book vandalism study, which we debriefed everyone on really carefully because people actually felt pretty crappy afterwards for doing something that they, well, okay. it's kind of bad.
0: Um, right. So, so stay. So, make sure you don't feel bad asking for it. Exactly. And make sure and the it's, other person won't thing. feel bad.
1: Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So you don't want to make the other person feel bad because they're actually gonna feel kind of obligated to agree. Um, in terms of saying no, I'd say you know. It's really hard. So I give people a lot of advice on saying no. And I just like it's hard to say no, like for someone else to say no to you when you ask face to face. And that's why you should ask face to face. It's really hard to say to someone else, ask, say no to someone else asking face to face. And so what I tell people to do is to not feel like they have to respond right away in that moment. I think people really feel put on the spot and feel like, you know, I just have to say something right now. But to take a breath tell someone to email you, which gives you more time. It gives you more space away from that other person, you know, say, ask later. I need to check. I need to ask with somebody else, uh, or check, you know, my calendar with somebody else, anything that kind of gives you, um, an, uh, sort of space to think. And also the sort of agent that you were talking about, like there's someone else I'm going to consult with. It's not just me. Right.
0: So, okay. But let, let me see, like, let's say someone asks you, uh, someone sees the book you're reading and says, Hey, I, I always wanted to read that book. Can I borrow it when you finished? How can you exercise in the way you just described? How, how can you kind of put some distance there? Because that seems like, why would you say no to that?
1: Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I would say, why would you say no to that? Right.
0: <laughs> right but but I, think I, 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 want, I think, though, people should try every single time they're asked something as much as possible to figure out how to put distance in just as an exercise. So how would you put distance in there?
1: Just as an exercise. Okay, so just to put put distance in there, I'd probably say, oh, you know, um, I'm not sure there was someone else who also asked me for that, right? Third party. It's not just me. I kind of take the pressure off me. Um, But I'll check. So, you know, I might, depending on who it is, I might say, here's my email. Will you just send me an email reminding me that you'd like to see the book, and I'll get back to you.
0: Like it. I like, like, look, okay, I don't know. I tend to uh, on and off read. It takes me sometimes a while to read. So just send me an email reminding me. And then the responsibility is on them to ask again anyway. So, and it puts a distance. Okay, that's a great one. So every time someone asks you something, even if it's simple, there's usually some way to put distance in, and that's a good exercise. Uh, In terms of, you know, you mentioned um, in general, people are underconfident about social behavior and like how many friends they have and their ability to make friends. Uh, what, What are some things people could practice when they meet new people how can they basically increase their odds of 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 friendship there?
1: So I'd say the first thing is to stop beating ourselves up in that sort of post-mortem we do after conversations or after meetings, for example. Like, I think when we get into a meeting and we say something, we often be like, oh, why did I say it like that? That was such a bad way to say it. Or, you know, um, we have an interaction with one other person. And we think, oh, my gosh, that person probably thought I talked too much or I talked too much about this thing. And we kind of just are very hard on ourselves. So I'd say, first of all, is assuming that, you know, whatever you think about that other person you probably aren't dissecting everything they said and you probably enjoyed that interaction. They're feeling the same way about you. So anything you can do to kind of like put yourself in that other person's perspective and think about how harsh you are on other people when they make a comment or when you're interacting with somebody else. And we usually aren't that harsh in the end. We usually are pretty positively inclined to evaluate other people. We don't pick apart everything they do and how inarticulately they said something. Um, And to give ourselves some slack about that as well.
0: But what's something, okay, so that's great. So they should basically be aware that everybody is underconfident and that will help them be more confident. But what about in this specific interaction? Is there anything, like you mentioned in the first chapter, maybe think of like an unusual compliment or just think of a compliment in general uh, uh, that's unexpected. But is that one technique or what's something they could try basically every time they meet new people? Yeah, I want want someone to exercise a muscle.
1: Yeah. No, I love it. Yeah. I think the compliment one is great. So yeah, we have, as you mentioned, we mentioned the compliments a few times. So I'll just give like a brief overview of those studies. So we basically brought people into the lab and similar to the other studies, you know, where people went out and asked strangers for things. We had people go up and compliment strangers on things. And so we either gave them something specific and we said, you just go up to a random person and say, Hey, I like your shirt. Um, or we said, come up with something you actually like about that person and compliment them on that. And we asked people how much will people enjoy this compliment, feel flattered by it, feel good about it? And then they gave this person after they complimented them an envelope, uh, which they filled out and they sealed and handed back. So the, the person who complimented couldn't see what was written on it. And the envelope had a survey that basically said, how much did you enjoy this interaction? You know, How flattered did you feel? So we could compare what participants thought to what people actually said when they were complimented. And participants thought that first of all, it was gonna be way more awkward than everyone experienced it as, and that people wouldn't feel as flattered and like the interaction as much as people actually did. So I think we hold back. We might notice something nice about somebody else and just hold back from saying it because we don't realize how good that's going to feel to that person. We we think that they're going to think it's really awkward that we're, you know, complimenting them. Um, But I'd say that's a great tip is go ahead. If you notice something nice about someone. Especially if it's something that really is you know value added sort of like oh, that presentation you gave was great. I love this example you used, something that really kind of acknowledges mm. something about them that would make them feel proud. you know I, we used a lot of superficial things, and those work too, but like something that's like indicates that they're they're pretty smart, you know they were a good presenter or something. I'd say definitely uh exercise that muscle
0: so so What's, what's like a, oh, let's let's structure this as an exercise. So like, you know, once a day or with, a, with every time you meet a stranger, try X.
1: Yeah, try to find something you like about them um, and tell them. It's as simple as that, I think. And I think everyone feels warm and fuzzy. So there's research showing that the complimenter, you feel good for doing it. Uh, and the other person feels better than you realize for having been complimented.
0: Yeah, I love it. And in terms of what's what's one good mass influence exercise? So in terms of like social media, like let's say Twitter, you wanna you wanna have more influence on Twitter, and you don't wanna be so generic and bland. Is there any exercise there? I know your studies don't as much do deal with that, but uh, what, what are your what's your off the cuff thinking of an exercise there?
1: Yeah, I'd say uh, the next time you tweet an article read it carefully and summarize it accurately. Uh, The most sort of interesting nugget. I think that is what I'm always most interested in is, you know, someone's interesting take on something. And that also gets away from this bullshit issue, right? Where you're just kind of tweeting things or all people are seeing are headlines, which are all clickbait anyway, right? So actually get to the heart of an article you find interesting and summarize it for people so that they can get a little more depth in that article.
0: Yeah. I love that. So, Uh, Vanessa Bond, uh, author of you have more influence than you think. Great book. Uh, it really compliments nicely. I have done a lot of podcasts about persuasion and influence, including, you know, Robert Cialdini has been on a bunch of times, uh, other people who've written books on influence and persuasion have been on. Uh, but I really think these are some valuable, valuable ideas. Like the, the idea that, uh, people are more. You know, I I never really thought about. I've always been in both uncomfortable asking for things and uncomfortable saying no. And I never really made the connection that that they're sort of opposite sides of the table. So if everybody's uncomfortable saying no, you should ask for more things. And at the same time, you should also practice ways to say no more, knowing knowing this. So it's really interesting that this this gives practical uh, things that could improve people's lives on on both sides of that equation. So, and and I, and I like these, these exercises and, and backed up by, by solid research, I guess final question is again, like you, you, you mentioned a little bit how, you know, it's helped you in life. When you were pregnant, you would ask for a seat and people, you knew, you had the confidence knowing that people were based on your research, that people were more likely to give you the seat. Uh, what other ways has your research helped your life? And I know this is not putting you on the spot. Maybe you can't remember right now, but I'm just curious if if there's some obvious examples.
1: No, that's okay. I, I definitely, I mean, I'd say in general, even more than just the sort of asking for a seat while I'm pregnant, I definitely feel more comfortable asking for things that I feel uh, like are things that are reasonable to ask for right? So asking for, you know, accommodations um, and helping other people ask for things. So really kind of when my students need something, really saying, okay, we're going to go ask for this or, you know, giving them tips to sort of ask. Um, But the other piece is definitely being aware of the power I have, particularly when I'm in sort of a hierarchical position of power over somebody else. And so sort of recognizing the things that I might suggest to my students that, they're not going to take as a suggestion that they're going to take as sort of a demand because it's coming from me, their advisor or their professor. Um, and so I think that's really helped as well where, you know, I really try to be thoughtful about the things I suggest and know that if I just come up with something, and I'm like, oh, maybe you could try this, that to them, that's not just a maybe you could try this. That's like, a okay, I have to do this now. My professor said it and really kind of think, choose my words carefully when it comes to things like that.
0: Right, because particularly in cases where, your higher status in the hierarchy, and you kind of by default have more influence, you have to be much more, you, you know, the, the whole with great power comes great responsibility phrase from Spider Man is, is much more important. By the way, uh, what's your husband's favorite band?
1: <laughs> I knew someone was going to ask me that. I, nope, I'm sworn to secrecy. Um, it's when yeah. someone's that
0: passionate <laughs> about a band, though. So, basically, Vanessa in her book describes how. Her husband um, tried really hard to convince her to like his favorite band. And when someone's that passionate about a band, like I might like the Beatles, but I don't care if other people like the Beatles or not. I find it's usually fish that is their favorite band. (laughs) (laughs) This
1: is one reason I don't want to tell because everyone has an idea what band it is. Um, Yeah. And it's usually of the fish, Grateful Dead genre, something like that. (laughs)
0: Yeah, some band that actually sucks, but everybody seems to like. So, no, for all the fish lovers out there, I've never even heard of a fish song, so I don't know. But, <laughs> Vanessa, thank you so much from coming on the, the podcast, and uh, I, I really appreciate it. Come on again in some time.
1: Thank you so much. This is great. Thank you.